And this semester, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And so tonight we start chapter 5, which means that, you know, next week we only have 35 more chapters to go in Exodus. But um, we've been trying to say every single week that the book of Exodus, while it does actually tell the true story of what happened historically, it also tells your story. Whether or not you knew it. it tells my story. It tells the story of the universe as I'm trying to make this claim every single week. And so the question that we're trying to press in on you is how does your story fit with the bigger story of the universe? Does it fit? Where do you find yourself? With all that in mind, let me read um, this really massive passage. And um, I'm sorry it's so long, but it's, you'll see why. Hopefully you'll see that it's... All of this is relevant and good to be connected. So let me just go ahead and read it. This is Exodus chapter 5. I'll read it and then we'll jump in and discuss it. It says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. (laughs) So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers, drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding... Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also, told, also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resigned as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Okay, this is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we look at it together. Okay, let's pray. Father, we need you to be our teacher as always and especially now. Spirit, would you be gracious and tender with us and open up hearts that are closed, unclog ears that may be stuffed, open up eyes that may be blinded. Give us a um, a receptivity that only your spirit can generate. And so we ask this only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I know that was a massively long passage. I mean, I already feel exhausted just reading it. But the passage is so beautiful because it shows you that that Moses and the Israelites are experiencing three things. They are experiencing frustration, confusion, and hopelessness. And and actually, this is why I love chapters 5 and 6. Of Exodus, this is why I wanted to read this whole chunk, because it really it reminds me, and hopefully it reassures you that the Bible doesn't give you cartoon characters that just always feel and say and think and do the right thing. You know, these people are just like you and me. If you're anything like me, you find yourself often frustrated and confused about life and hopeless at times. And so I think this passage is so instructive because it really does help us untangle and get to the root of these sort of three big things that we feel a lot. So that's kind of what I want to do. This is our roadmap of where we're going tonight is why do we feel frustrated? Why do we feel confused? And why do we feel hopeless? There it is. Okay, so let's look at these one at a time. Here's the first thing. Why are we frustrated? Maybe even more narrowly speaking, why are we spiritually frustrated? Well, to kind of get into the story, you have to do a little bit of... um, Context. If you rewind into the very end of chapter 4, chapter uh, 4, verse 29 through 31, you have the scene of the people of Israel worshiping God. They've believed God, and there's like this worship celebration. And it's that sort of worship moment that emboldens Moses in verse 1 to go talk to the most powerful man probably in the known world. And so you kind of see it in verse 1. He's, he's got this message from God that he's, that he's about to deliver to Moses. He's amped. He's feeling jacked up. He's about to throw down this message to Moses. I kind of imagine Katy Perry roar in the background, like slow motion. I got the eye of the... You know what I'm saying? So he's walking up to Pharaoh, and he's amped up, and he's got this message. He's about to throw it down, and here's what he says. Verse 1... This is what the Lord says. 
let my people go. And you know that sound when a record skips? That's verse 2. Verse 2 is Pharaoh hearing this, and he just responds with nothing but sarcasm. He just mocks Moses and his God and says, like, who? The Lord? Like, I've never heard of him. And that totally throws off the whole momentum of the flow here because uh, actually without kind of rereading and going to all the details, verses 6 through 19, Pharaoh is so pissed off, honestly, by this request that he just makes things exponentially harder for the people of Israel to punish them. So you saw, as we kind of read, the thing that he does is he says, look, I want y'all to make the same amount of bricks, but we're not going to supply the, you know, the, the provisions for it anymore. So now you've got to do the same amount of work and cover all of the supplies that you've got to do for it. In other words, you've got to do two jobs now for the time of one. In other words, their work just got crazy intensified. And what is their reaction to it? Verse 21, they go up to Moses and they say, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're extremely frustrated. And you kind of feel this whiplash. If you kind of compare it right where they just were, worshiping, celebrating, yay, God's going to bust us out of slavery. And now, total anger, total frustration, whiplash of emotion. It actually reminded me of um, a few years ago, my wife Catherine and I went to a wedding. And it was an awesome wedding, awesome reception, had such a fun time. And at the end of the night, um, you know when the bride and the groom are going to like the car or the limo or whatever they're going to? At the end of the reception, different receptions do it differently to kind of send the bride and the groom away. Sometimes they, they have you throw rice at them. Uh, sometimes they blow bubbles and kind of they walk through this like bubble thing. And um, this particular wedding, they gave you sparklers, you know, like the 4th of July little sparkler things, which was really beautiful. It's kind of this elegant, um, I don't know, warm, lit up little gauntlet for them to go through. Problem was, is I had, I, you know, someone gave me the, spi- the sparkler and lit it, but there were so many people at this wedding, I was like two or three people deep into the line. And as I'm holding this thing, apparently I'm standing a little too close to the woman in front of me. And apparently she had a lot of hairspray in her hair because her hair got caught on fire by my sparkler. So as you know, this, this wedding thing is going, everyone's celebrating, the, the crowd around me starts you know, putting it out. And once the, the fire in her hair was out, I, I got the stink eye of all stink eyes from this crowd around me. And so it really was this sort of emotional whiplash of like we're celebrating yay sparklers like fire and like like you know love in the air and then all of a sudden we hate this guy and I've I felt it but that's exactly what is kind of maybe not exactly what's going on in the story but that's that is the emotional temperature change that is happening in the story one minute they're excited they're celebrating they're worshiping they're believing the next moment anger frustration okay but the question is why Why are they frustrated? Well, frustration has everything to do with expectation. You know, I've heard it said that the gap between expectation and reality is frustration. You know, in other words, you know, you put your money in a vending machine. Your expectation is for the, when you hit the button for the Reese's cups or the Reese's cups to come out. But if the reality doesn't happen, then the gap between expectation and reality is frustration. That's why you're, you start pounding on the, you know, the machine and start shaking it. 
So that raises the question, then, what were these people expecting? Because if you remember, God came to Moses, gave him a message to go speak this message to Pharaoh. Moses obeyed. He went up and he spoke the message to Pharaoh. And life got harder for the people of Israel, not easier. And so what I think this tells you is that the people of Israel had a radically different script for what their life was supposed to look like when they obeyed God. In other words, their expectation was, their script was, when we obey God, life gets better. When we obey God and do what he tells us to do, life gets easier. And I wonder um, if you can relate to that. Where it feels like the script that you have for your life is radically different than maybe what God has for your life. Where it feels like maybe, maybe when you were in high school, um, you were really spiritually in tune, spiritually on fire. Uh, maybe this was the time for you in college. And now that you're here, life has not worked out the way that you thought it would. You know, back in the day, you used to be really excited about going to church or going to like this kind of stuff. You would read the Bible, you would pray. Uh, and, and now that you're in college, you no longer kind of have those spiritually groovy vibes that you used to. Um, reading your Bible is really frustrating when you pray once every, you know, three weeks, your mind's distracted. You don't really know, like, how to do it. And so life's really frustrating for you right now, spiritually speaking, because it's not working out according to your script. You know, for some of you, others of you, maybe not spiritually speaking, but you got to UT and you intentionally tried to make all the right decisions. You know, you didn't go off the deep end like your friends did. You tried to be responsible And you thought that those decisions would guarantee a certain outcome, a certain level of success. You thought that it would open up doors for your career. You thought that it would kind of open up doors for close friends to kind of come pouring into your life. Maybe it would open up doors for sort of romantic interests with someone else. And you find yourself having made responsible, good decisions all throughout college, and you don't feel happy, and you don't feel connected, and you don't feel, you know, like it was worth it. The reason why we're frustrated is because we have different scripts. The script that we think is if we obey, if we do all the right decisions, then my life's going to work out well. It's going to be happy. In other words, we, we think that if we obey God, he owes us blessing. That's our script. That's our expectation. If we obey God, he owes us blessing. And by the way, when we use the word blessing, we mean upper class American blessing. We don't We're not really interested in third world country blessings. We want upper class American blessing. In other words, we want comfort, success, happiness, popularity, wealth, power. And so when we don't get those things, and that's our expectation, we're incredibly frustrated. But here's the good news and here's the hard news. God's script for your life is not to bless you in an American upper class sense of that word. God's actually much more interested in your transformation. He's actually more interested in making you beautiful and transforming you from the inside out. And one of the key ways that he brings about that sort of transformation is that he uses suffering to do it. You know, we just sang the song, um, How Firm a Foundation. I don't think we sang this first. Maybe we did, and I was just not paying attention. But the line goes, The flame shall not harm thee, I only design, this is God speaking, you know, 
to us. The flame shall not harm thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It's an old sort of English way of talking about this metaphor, this metaphor of the way that they used to refine gold, purify gold, is they'd put a piece of gold in a furnace and crank the heat up. And the fire would burn off the impurities, burn off the dross to actually make the gold more beautiful, more pure. And so, you know, the the, the song is saying, look, when God brings hardship in your life, suffering into your life, when he turns up the heat, he's not trying to consume you. He's not trying to hurt you, to harm you. He's trying to transform you, to make you more beautiful. And if you do not let your script for your life get synchronized with his for your life, you will be perpetually frustrated because he will bring about hardship and suffering. So that's why we're frustrated because our lives really don't go according to our scripts. But okay, here's the second thing. Let's let's try to look under the root of why we're confused. Why they're confused. Because you know, anytime hardship hits in your life, anytime suffering hits in your life, One of the first questions that you ask in your heart of hearts is why? Why me? Why this? Why now? And that's the same exact reaction that Moses has. Look at verse 22. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why? He says it twice. Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? I mean, can you hear sort of the confusion in his voice? Moses is like, dude, like you came to me and said, go talk to Pharaoh and then that you would release us. So I obeyed, and I talked to Pharaoh, and you haven't released us. Like, I don't get it. What's the deal? Totally confused, totally thrown off. And what I want to try to show you is the reason why Moses is confused about this is because he has selective hearing. The reason that Moses is confused is because he has selective hearing. And here's where I get this from. You have to do a little background work. But if you go back into chapter 3, as God is telling Moses that he's going to deliver his people. He says, I will release your people. In chapter 3, verse 19, God also tells Moses, oh yeah, by the way, when you go talk to Pharaoh about all of this, he will not let you go. God already told them this would happen. In fact, he even repeats it in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 21, God tells him again, look, when you go to Pharaoh, his heart is going to be hard. He's not going to listen. He's not going to let you go. And so what we learn is, Moses was hearing all this stuff from God about deliverance and liberation and rescue. And he got all amped up about that stuff and totally filtered out the parts of, oh yeah, and it's going to be really hard and Pharaoh's not going to listen and you're going to suffer. He heard what he wanted to hear and he filtered out what he didn't want to hear. And again, (laughs) I wonder if we're the same. Where we get all excited about the fact that the Bible talks about God giving grace. Forgiveness and grace, and he offers comfort to your soul and rest for you when you're weary. But we filter out the parts when he also says, I promise you, I promise, if you want to follow Jesus, you will suffer. If you want to identify yourself publicly with Jesus, here's what this means this means that people are going to think that you're narrow minded, people are going to think that you're anti intellectual, they're not going to take you seriously. Maybe probably the biggest act of suffering for you and me, honestly, if we're, if we're, serious, if, if we're honest about it, is uh, to be identified as a Christian is that you lose your coolness. There's nothing cool about being a Christian, believe me. Christianity is not cool. Think about how weird Christians do dating and alcohol and sex. That's weird to the rest of the world. 
I know that doesn't feel weird here because we're at Knoxville, and Knoxville, at least according to a survey a year ago, rated Knoxville as the number one most biblically literate city in the country. You know, Knoxville is like young life mecca is like right here. And so it's like Christianity has taken over and like dominated Knoxville, which can be a really great thing. The problem with that is that in certain subcultures that you may kind of find yourself in, certain circles that you find yourself in, being a Christian can be seen as cool. But you leave Knoxville, go anywhere else, it's not cool. And the, the thing that is, um, the case is, if you're going to publicly identify with yourself with Jesus, that means that you're going to suffer. You will experience hardship. People will think that you're lame. People will think that you're weird. People will think the decisions that you make to follow Jesus, to come into a room on Tuesday night that's really stinking hot and sing these weird songs and read a passage that's like 18 minutes long is weird. Let's just embrace it. So people are going to make fun of you, but the Bible says you need to expect that. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4 says this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happened to you. But rejoice in the fact, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So the Bible's saying, you know, you need to expect external suffering, you know, people making fun of you, people persecuting you, but also there's internal suffering. The longer that you walk with Jesus, you get more in touch with your sin, which is incredibly hard. Life becomes actually harder in some ways because you struggle more intensely with your own sin. You experience levels of sadness that you would not have felt otherwise had you not chosen to follow Christ. And so there's internal, there's external suffering. And my whole point is, this should not surprise you when hard things happen to you. It shouldn't confuse you. It shouldn't throw you off when hard things happen to you. And actually, I hope this is, honestly, I really hope this is encouraging to you. Because it normalizes your struggle. I'm try, I'm really, all I'm trying to do is just normalize the fact that God says this is normal. For you to struggle and suffer in the ways that you are struggling and suffering. You know, for example, um, belonging to Jesus does not guarantee that your depression will go away. And there are some Christians that can, quote, market Jesus in such a way or market Christianity in such a way that implies that it will. And so if you consider yourself a Christian and you're still depressed, not only do you have the weight of your own depression, but you have the added weight of wondering, maybe I'm not doing the whole Christianity thing right either. But belonging to Jesus doesn't guarantee that your depression will go away. Belonging to Jesus doesn't guarantee that your sin will go away. In fact, the longer that you walk with Jesus, you're going to find out that your struggle with sin gets more intense, not easier. You know, belonging to Jesus doesn't guarantee that you'll get married. Belonging to Jesus doesn't guarantee that you're going to instantly know what you're supposed to major in and what your career is supposed to be. Belonging to Jesus doesn't you know, necessarily guarantee any of those things. And so my point is, my challenge is, don't be selective in your hearing. God says you're going to experience hard things. And so let that normalize your struggle, not throw you off and confuse you. So that's why we're frustrated, because we have different scripts. That's why we're confused because we have selective hearing. So let's look at this last thing. Why are we hopeless? Why are we hopeless for those of us that are? So go back, back to the story. Moses, uh, you know, he's experiencing all of this frustration, all of this confusion. He feels like a failure. He feels like he's totally lost. 
And so he goes back to God and he you know, tells them all this stuff. And, and the Lord's response here is incredible. You know, I included chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 in this. And, I, man, I wish we had more time to really jump into it. But what the Lord does in verses 1 through 8 is he just barrages Moses with a reminder of who he is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. And so nearly every verse has God as the subject. Let me me just show you. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, because of my hand, Pharaoh will let the people go. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 4, I have established my covenant. Verse 5, I have heard their groanings. I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6 is packed with them. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I promised. And so the Lord's response to Moses' emotional mess is one that is packed with love and commitment and promise and hope. God is basically saying, look, do not forget who I am, what I have done, and what I promised to do. And so what he's doing is he is rooting their circumstances in the reality of God. So Moses takes this majestic message and goes back and delivers it to the people of Israel. And here's their response. Verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Another translation says they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit. In other words, their slavery, their misery had been going on for so long and it was so intense that it was like their hearts had just sort of given out. They had just grown hopeless that nothing was going to change. Even with this majestic gospel message of the Lord will deliver you. He will liberate you. He will do this. He is good. He's making good on his word. It just sort of bounced off of them because they were so, their spirit was so broken. And I wonder if you can relate. Where a majestic gospel message comes to you, a reminder of who God is, what he has done, and what he will do, and it just sort of bounces off. Because you're so discouraged, you're so used to, to the fact of your own suffering, your own hardship, your own issues, that you really do think that nothing will change. Which does remind me of, man, one of the all-time classic movies of all time, uh, The Shawshank Redemption. If you haven't seen the movie, you, I may want you to leave right now and just go start like watching it on Netflix or something. But if you, you know, the basic premise is, it's a story about a prison. And it's a story of all these different prisoners. And one of the the prisoners that has been there for a long time is this older man named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And one day a new inmate comes in named Andy, who's played by um, Tim Robbins. And Andy is unlike all the rest of the prisoners. Because all the prisoners in there have basically just resigned themselves that things will never change. They're in prison for life. They're never getting out. Life on this side of the wall, this is, this is all they have and this is all they know. But for Andy, he would never stop dreaming about life outside of the walls. He was always fantasizing, always dreaming about what it was like when he would get out. And so one day, Red, the older guy, starts explaining to Andy the way that the prison psychologically imprisons you as well. And here's what he says. He says, these walls are funny. First you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. 
They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. I think some of you have been so enslaved to your sin and to your circumstances for so long that you feel the same way. That your sin and your struggles, you no longer hate them, you've grown used to them. And your heart has given out and you feel like things will never change. It's this sense of hopelessness that you'll never change as a person. And so you've stopped dreaming about what life looks like on the other side of the wall. So let me make this a little bit more practical. Some of you have been enslaved and addicted to porn for so long that it really does feel like any word of God's promise or God's provision or God's power can do anything. So it just feels like in your heart of heart, things will never change, so you give up. Or some of you have have been enslaved for so long to cutting yourself, to harming yourself, that it feels like Even though you know that God is there, even though you know that God is good, it just feels like things will never change. And so your your heart gives out and you you give up. Some of you have struggled with eating for so long that that you've, you've lost a vision of what life could look like on the other side of the wall. That any news, any, any vision of something different feels like a lie. And so you just, you give up. It just feels like things will never change. Or you wrestle, you struggle, you feel so imprisoned to your emotions, your guilt, your sadness, your anger. It's been that way for so long that you feel like things will never change. And so you give up. And I get it because I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. My, man, one of the things I have struggled with my entire life has been people pleasing. Needing other people to approve of me, to like me, to give me applause. And what what that amounts to in my life is that my life gets driven by fear. And that fear drives me to be silent when I should speak. Uh, It drives me to be a coward when I should be bold. It drives me to overwork when I should rest. It drives me to, you know, to self-hatred when I get criticized. Man, I've been a Christian for 17 years. And I struggle with this every day. I struggle with it every week coming up here doing this. Because as soon as this is over, there's a part of me that is so afraid that you're not going to like me. That you're not going to like it. And so it just is this thread that runs itself through my life in such a way that sometimes I just feel like my heart's... I just want to give up sometimes. I just feel like I want to give out because it's so exhausting. I'm so sick of the struggle. So where do we go from here then? We could close in prayer right here and just be the most depressing sermon ever. But where do we go? Well, there's actually this amazingly bright spot at the end of this. Look at, um, look at the last two verses, verses 10 and 11. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. I love this. Because what this is, is the people of Israel frustrated, confused, hopeless. They're an emotional mess. And none of it deters God's plan for them. God's like, okay. Well, the game plan is still on. I'm still going to rescue you from Egypt, which is actually incredible because God's looking at these people, his people that are doubting him, that are angry, that are frustrated, that are confused, that are hopeless. And God says, look, I'm still committed to you. You may have given up on me. I have not given up on you. That's unbelievably good news. That even when they don't believe it, that God's going to rescue them. He still says, okay, well, I'm still going to. 
<laughs> it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not, because I'm going to. You know, I, I heard this story that took place uh, last month. Some of you may have heard this story, and I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, in Arizona, it was a story about this woman who was walking with her two-year-old daughter and their dog. And the dog kind of ran off away from uh, the two of them. And so the daughter started running after the dog, chasing after the dog. And on the way to chase the dog, she stepped on this plastic cover on the ground. And the, the cover ended up kind of flipping. And it revealed that there was this big kind of well, this big hole in the ground that she fell into. And it turns out it was a, a septic tank filled to the brim with human waste. You kind of picture a soup of poop and pee. Sorry, but that's the, what it is. If you didn't know what human waste was. But that's it. So she falls in and she completely submerges, sinks. So, of course, the mom starts screaming. And there's two guys that hear her, run over, see what's going on. The first guy dives face first into the sewage inhales and swallows a bunch of it on the first dive in, comes back up coughing, gagging, collects himself, closes his eyes, goes back down, and he's under there for a little bit, swimming around, fishing around, can't see anything. Time passes, he comes up, no sign of her. So the second guy dives in, head first, and they're swimming around and fishing around for four minutes without any sign from her. After four minutes, they pull out a lifeless, limp body, put her on the ground. Uh, there's a nearby woman who comes over, starts administering CPR without um, caring, obviously, what's on this little girl's mouth, and is able, after a few minutes, to revive her. And she's rescued, brought back to, from death to life, as it were. The thing that I love about that story is that the rescuers were so committed to saving this little girl who was drowning in filth that they didn't care if some of that filth got on them. And they dove in headfirst to go save her. And that's a beautiful picture of the Lord's commitment to save his people who are drowning in the mess of their own filth. That he's so committed, getting some of the filth on him doesn't deter him. In fact, that's actually the way that he saves you. If he jumps into the pool... He takes your filth on himself. He gets drowned on the cross so that you can be rescued, so that you can be revived, so that you can be liberated. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes your filth, who swallows it, who gets buried in it so that you can be liberated, so that you can be rescued. And so tonight is an invitation, really, more than any other, to behold the commitment of Jesus to save you to love you, to redeem you. And so even if you have weak faith, faltering faith, you know, faith with doubt mixed up in there, the good news is that the Lord's still committed to blessing you and saving you and loving you. Your doubt, your confusion, your hopelessness is no match for the aggressive, ferocious love of God. So that's what begins to reshape you. Your script becomes synchronized with his. You stop allowing yourself to have selective hearing. And when you see his radical commitment to you, man, that's what floods your heart with hope, or at least begins to kind of let the light pierce the darkness so that you can start dreaming about life outside of the walls again. 
And so we're going to sing the song here in a second. And let me just invite you to sing the song and respond by drawing your attention to one of the verses. It says, Come ye weary, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, which is an old way of saying, if you wait, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Because it's not the righteous, it's sinners Jesus came to call. Man, that's really good news. Let me pray. Father, would you be so kind as to give us fresh eyes and a fresh heart to see your radical commitment to rescuing us. And when we see Jesus in that way, I pray that that would would give us a fresh surge of hope. That would give us fresh faith to trust you. Uh, fresh um, security to even wrestle with our own unbelief, our own frustration, our own confusion. Help us to have the security of your love and your commitment to us that would free us to be radically honest and authentic and yet filled with a deep and abiding hope. Would you please do that? And these guys' hearts here and mine as well, because I need it too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.